0: You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who received it. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading from John chapter 6. Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves.
1: And peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus tells us that Pergamum is the place where Satan's throne was. Pergamum was known for its idolatry. It had a massive temple to Zeus, 1,300 feet over the city on this ridge, overlooking everything had a temple to Athena, the patron goddess of the city. It was one of the centers of the emperor worship. In fact, it even got a special commendation a few times for their devotion to the cult of the emperor. So Jesus rightly says it's where Satan's throne is. It's a hotbed of idolatry. In Bible study this past Sunday, as we were looking at this, I asked the class where in America Do you see this kind of idolatry today? And the classic greed, it was everywhere. That in America right now, there's idolatry throughout the land. What Jesus does here with this message is he warns us how deadly idolatry is for us. That's what we want to look at first, these dangers of idolatry. Idolatry at its core is having faith in, worshiping, something other than the one true God, right fearing loving and trusting in something else other than the true god of the bible and that can really be anything just because we don't have a massive temple to zeus overlooking collinsville doesn't mean there isn't idolatry in the city doesn't mean there isn't idolatry creeping up in our own hearts Anytime we put something before Jesus, when God's word says, do this, and this other thing over here says, no, do this other thing, and we do that, it reveals what we're worshiping, who we're serving. One of the things in the passage that comes out is sexual immorality. Because even the pursuit of pleasure can be an idol. Right? Sexual immorality itself, Paul warns again and again, is such a great sin against our own bodies. And he links it constantly to idolatry. Because in the ancient worlds, that often happened at these pagan temples. Sexual immorality was quite common there. But it's not just that. It can be anything. Whether it's power and money, fame, the government, our own families. We can make anything an idol because our hearts our little idol factories. We're constantly producing new idols to worship. Yet the Bible warns us again and again that idolatry is spiritual adultery. That when we go after these other gods, we worship that which is not the one true God. We have, in the language of the Bible, we've cheated on God. We've gone after something that's not gods. And the Bible warns us about this because what happens is these idols offer a false hope. They make all kinds of promises to us. Through these idols, the devil promises the world to us. Worship this, follow this, and your life will be just the way you want it. But it's a false hope. They make lots of promises, but they do not deliver on them. What you end up with is a banquet in the grave. The Bible tells us that behind all idols are demons. And what do demons do? They deceive. Their goal is to lead you astray, to put you in bondage to sin and to these false gods, to lead you astray from the one true God and ultimately to hell itself. That's why Jesus warns. He says he will come and with the sword of his mouth war against those Christians and that church who are committing this idolatry. He says, rather, you must repent. And the warning is still there for us today. If we're serving and worshiping idols, either individually or as a church, Jesus says, repent, or you will come in war against us with the sword of his mouth. Jesus wants us to repent because he knows that idols lead to destruction. To our own destruction. To our church's destruction. Instead, we are to conquer, we are to have victory in Christ. Who is the faithful witness. Now he calls in this passage Antipas, my faithful witness. More on that in a moment. But in chapter 1, the opening verses of the book of Revelation... Jesus is called the faithful witness. He is the faithful witness. He is the one who, in thought, word, and deed, perfectly did what the Father gave him to do. He never sins, he never had an idol creep up in his heart. He always perfectly feared, loved, and trusted in God above all things. And because of that, he offered himself up as a perfect sacrifice. So then the very next part of Revelation chapter 1 says that he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. The one who conquered death and the grave for us. The ruler of kings on earth. It says he loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. What a beautiful summary of the entire gospel. Who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. And Jesus, too, in his death, has defeated the idols. He's defeated the demons and the gods of this world. In Colossians, Paul tells us this that Jesus has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, part one, he cancels the record of our debt, our sin. That's removed. That's nailed to the cross, and it's marked paid in full by the blood of Christ. But notice, second, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Don't miss that. Part one is he dealt with our sin. Part two is he dealt with the devil and his demons too. He put them, it says, to open shame. He utterly defeated them. In his death, he's triumphed over them. They cannot conquer him, he has conquered them. He is Lord of all, he is the faithful witnesses. And so, because of this, the promise he gives us at the end of this passage are real promises, true hope, because he is the faithful one. We know that he'll actually keep his promises. He's not like the idols that promise one thing and lead you to a banquet in the grave. In fact, we see that with our victory in him, we have a far greater banquet than we could ever imagine. Which brings us to Antipas, the only martyr named in the entire book of Revelation. Jesus calls him my faithful witness. Remember what Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, I'll confess before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny for my Father who is in heaven. And so Antipas, we're told, held fast to the name of Jesus. He didn't worship these other gods. He didn't go chasing after idols. Instead, he stood firm, confessed the faith, and it cost him his life. And so too for us. To be a faithful witness, we must reject, we must fight the idols. We must fight against the ones even that creep up in our own hearts. We must fear, love, and trust in him. We must live in the grace and forgiveness of sins that he bought with his blood as we battle in war with the help of the Holy Spirit against this idolatry that creeps up in our hearts. And in so doing, we hold fast to his name, we cling to him, We say that we are only faithful witnesses because we're clinging to Jesus, the faithful witness. And Jesus says when we do that, we've conquered. We have victory. The word there is the word you're all familiar with because of the Nike shoe company. We have Nike. We have victory. We're conquerors. What does he give us? Three things we're told. The first is the hidden manna. Hidden manna was that jar of manna that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant that no one could touch or eat. Jesus says he gives us the true hidden manna, the greater hidden manna, his very body and blood. We heard about that in John chapter 6. As Pastor Walter read that. He gives us a white stone. The white stone in the city in ancient times was. Several things. One thing was, it was a mark of acquittal in a court case. In Jesus, you've been given this white stone, you're acquitted. Your sins are not held against you. It was also, though, an invitation to a banquet. So you're invited to this banquet of hidden manna by Jesus himself. You're invited to feast on him. Not in the grave, but here where heaven meets earth in this holy place. And for all eternity with him at the banquets, the lamb's feast that knows no ends. And finally it says he gives you a new name that no one else knows except the one who receives it. This is strange. It's a little odd. We don't fully know what it means. But we know this much. It means that Jesus knows you so well and loves you so much that he gives you a name that perfectly summarizes who you are and a name only he knows and gives to you so as we look at pergamum as we look at my faithful witness antipas as jesus calls him we're called to look to the faithful witness jesus to cling to him that we might ourselves remain faithful witnesses in the face of the idolatry that's all around us amen the peace of God passes on understanding guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.